Thank you, Brian, for leading us in liturgy this morning. Uh, well, good morning, church. It is good to, it's good to be with you. If, if we haven't met yet, my name is Murray Nickel. I'm the director of youth and family ministry here at Redeemer. And uh, Fritz, Pastor Fritz has been on, at a con- away at a conference this past week, and uh, we'll be returning later today, and so you are stuck with me today. Uh, but it is a joy uh, to get to bring God's word to us this morning. Now, if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Revelation 2, uh, verses 1 to 7. And as you turn there, I want to ask you uh, to think back to the last time that you received a letter or a, or a handwritten note. Maybe it was a thank you note maybe a birthday card, an anniversary card, maybe it was just a sweet note from your child. You know, I've I've always struggled with remembering to write letters that I should write. I've got ADD, and I don't know if it has to do with the focus required or the intentionality that's required, but but I've always struggled with it. In fact, I was thinking about it, and I don't even think I remembered to write uh, thank you notes for my high school graduation gifts, um, which still haunts me, and I'm sure my mother. But, but one thing that I've, that I've learned since being married uh, to Addie is that sending letters is, is valuable. Letters are valuable. You know, Addie loves thank you notes. She loves writing thank you notes, making lists of people that we should write thank you notes to. And I love that about her um, because on my own, I would never think to write thank you notes. Um, but Addie, on the other hand, knows something that I am little by little learning through her, that, that letters are meaningful. You know, they take time and energy, intentionality, and they communicate love and, and care and, and attention. Well, well today we're, we're beginning a new section in the revelation of Jesus given to John on the island of Patmos. Last week, uh, Fritz preached on this vision given to John in chapter 1, an image of, of Jesus as a loving, priestly, ruling king who's, who's full of power and glory who holds angel warriors in the palm of his hand. And as we turn the page to chapter 2, we find that it's this loving and priestly King Jesus who who not only stooped down to touch John, but stoops down and tells John, John, I, I want you to write some mail for me. I want you to write some letters, letters to my church, to my people. So, so we're in this section now where, where we come to these letters to seven churches. There's seven churches represented here. And, and as we're going to see, each one of them is, is a historical church. Each one of these churches is a real church in John's day. And, 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 and while the letters share the, the, the same form largely, they, they each begin with, with a, an address to the individual church, the historical church it's addressed to. Uh, an identification of who Jesus is to this church from, that's actually taken from the images of chapter 1, then an evaluation of the church, both with usually with both commendations, a- affirmations of what Jesus commends in this church and also rebukes. And then finally, there's a command to hear and a promise for those who do. So, so each letter is going to share largely the same form. But we're also going to find that each letter is, is full of, of love, of attention, of care for the church to which it is addressed, like like any good letter should be. And yet, these are not only letters to these specific churches. Now, Fritz has mentioned in the past that that numbers in Revelation are are incredibly important. 
and they may not always, they, they have multiple meanings. And the number seven, that the seven churches that are represented here, the number seven is a number that, that throughout Scripture, throughout Scripture um, is used as a picture of, of wholeness, of completeness. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 1, where, where God has completed his work of creation, and he rests on the seventh day because his creation was whole. It was complete. It was done. So then these, these letters, these seven, these seven churches... The seven churches stand in for the whole church, the complete church of Jesus throughout all time and space. So what that means is that these letters are not just for these churches, they are letters for us. They are letters to us as well. So as we read them, we're going to need the Spirit's help to see the comfort, the challenge, and the command of Christ, not only for this church in history, but for Redeemer right now. And so today we begin with the letter to the Ephesian church, a church whose love, Jesus says, has grown distant, it's grown cold, it's lagging, it's flagging. And I wonder if that image registers with you like it does me. I wonder if you felt maybe a growing distance between you and Jesus. Maybe your devotional life has gone a little cold and bland and you keep going through the motions but it doesn't get better. Maybe prayer feels stale or forced. Maybe it feels like the fire has all but gone out in your relationship with your King Jesus. And you might find yourself wondering, boy, how did I, how did I get here? And am I stuck? Is there, any, is there any way out? And the reality is that, that in a world that awaits Jesus' final return, when his kingdom is finally consummated, if you can't relate to that feeling right now, you certainly will. And it's in the middle of that place, in the middle of that dryness, that coldness, that distance, that Jesus' letter comes to the Ephesians and to us, his universal church, with, with a call. And the call is, don't abandon. Don't abandon, but, but remember your first love. So follow along with me as I read for us Revelation 2, uh, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Will you pray with me as we come to God's word? Father, we need your Spirit's help. God, reveal to us what you would have us to hear in this text. And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth 
and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So again, the call of Jesus to the Ephesians and to us is to remember our first love. And we're going to see in this text that he he calls us to this by, by showing us three things. Love's loss, love's return, and love's promise. So so look with me first at at verses 1 to 4 where we see the road to love's loss. So right away we see who this letter is addressed to. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. You know, as I mentioned, first and foremost, these letters are to a historical church. They're to a real people grounded in a real place. And so we have to begin first by, by a little bit of an understanding of what Ephesus was as a place. You know, as a city, Ephesus was a major port city. And and so it was a crossroads of of commerce, of culture, of religion. And so the church in Ephesus played a hugely important role in the early church. It was on like the star list of churches in the early church. I mean, it was the home to Paul for three years during one of his missionary journeys. Paul writes 1 and 2 Timothy to his young protege, Timothy, who's a pastor at Ephesus. And while it's not recorded in scripture, even John who this revelation is given to, even John spent his elderly years in Ephesus. So so to to a contemporary of John, who's reading this letter, whether they're from Ephesus or one of the other churches that received this letter, to, to a contemporary of John, it would have made sense that Ephesus was the first church addressed. So so notice also the way that Jesus identifies himself to this church. He says, the words of the one who holds the seven stars, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This this goes back to the end of chapter one, where where Jesus is described as holding the the stars in his right hand. Right hand? I'm left-handed. I always go to my left hand. Right hand. We find out in chapter one that that these stars represent the, the seven angels of these churches. And we could spend all day digging into what this means. But I don't think we're supposed to. I think what's happening is is we're being given just a glimpse, a peek behind the curtain of heaven where we see a hierarchy of of a host of angels with Jesus holding the angels who guard his churches, who oversee his churches in the very palm of his right hand. Fritz talked last week about palming a basketball. It's the way that Jesus holds these seven angel warriors. It's a picture of authority, of power, and of glory. But he is also the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We find out from chapter one, those seven lampstands are the churches, are Christ's church, his bride. Jesus is not just lording over his church, he is walking among his church. It's the picture of the Garden of Eden, right, with Adam walking with God in the cool of the day. Jesus is walking among his church. He's examining it like a careful gardener, giving it what it needs, caring for it. And this leads to the body of the letter, where in verse 2, he looks at the Ephesians and he says, I know your deeds. See, Jesus knows this church. He knows this, this port city church intimately. And what does he know? He points out two things particularly. He says, I know your toil and your patient endurance. He says, I know your toil. That word toil, it carries the sense of of laboring to the point of weariness. 
So what are they laboring in? Well, in the rest of verse 2, he, he expands on it by saying that you cannot bear with evil men. And, and that you have, even, you, have, you have even tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. It says you're zealous for doctrine. You're unwilling to compromise. You're committed to the purity of the church, the purity of my gospel. And then he says, I know your patient endurance. Verse 3, he says it again, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. See, the church at Ephesus was a church known by Jesus himself as a church that was zealous for doctrine, zealous for truth, and, and, and they, they were bearing up. They were willing to suffer loss and stay committed, persevere. Re- remember their context, right? A wealthy port city with all manner of, of culture and religion vying and, and tempting them and persuade, pushing them to compromise, to compromise the truth of the gospel, to gain favor, to avoid persecution, to gain status and popularity. There would have been a constant temptation for the Ephesians to compromise on the truth of the gospel. And yet Jesus looks at this church and he says, no, 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 I know your labor for truth. I know your willingness to undergo suffering and loss even for for my name. I know you have not compromised. But the report is not over, is it? He continues in verse four. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. It's a jarring turn, if we're honest. I mean, imagine you're the Ephesians or any one of the other churches that received this letter. You're reading, you're hearing this book read to you. You're hearing this letter, this revelation read to you. And frankly, up to verse four, it's all sounding pretty good. Jesus sees me. He sees how hard I'm working to keep his word pure. He sees how stiff my upper lip is to the sufferings I face. And then verse four comes and the hammer drops but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You see, the Ephesian church had taken a a good, God-honoring duty of the church to protect the purity of the gospel, committing themselves to sound doctrine, to enduring suffering for Christ's sake. And they had run with it. They had run with zeal. But what they left behind in their zeal was love. And I think, I think the, the love you had at first is a little bit vague, but I think it's intended to be vague because I think it's an all-encompassing love. It's a love for God, a love for one another, a love for, for neighbor. See, the Ephesian church had gotten so caught up in the duty of doing the work of Christianity, in, in preserving the purity of the church, in kicking out, not bearing with false teachers, in enduring suffering and bearing up for the gospel, that they had lost the fueling fire of the love they had at first. It reminds me of of the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the story about two brothers that Jesus tells. The younger brother was reckless. The older brother was responsible. The younger brother cursed his father. The older brother always obeyed his father. The younger brother ran off with the inheritance sullying the good name of his family, the older brother stayed. He persevered. 
He worked his father's fields. He preserved what was left of the good name of his family. He endured patiently with his father through his grief over losing his son who happened to take everything. Committed himself to being a good son. And and these were good things, were they not? These were good, commendable things. And initially they were born out of a place of love. A love from his father and a love for his father. But somewhere over time, not all at once, but little by little, that love had faded. And the older brother had lost sight of the love he had for his father, the love of his father for him. And it got so bad that when the younger son comes back and the father throws a huge party, joy, being, being joyful over the return of his son, he comes out and invites the older brother, invites the older brother in, and because he's lost the love for the sake of duty, he cannot share in the joy of his father. See, the same was true for the Ephesians. In their commitment to the work of following Jesus, in their commitment to preserving doctrine, protecting the gospel from the influence of the enemy, the spiritual enemy which Jesus has conquered and is conquering, they had failed to commit themselves to the greatest commandment, love. And I wonder, I wonder if the same is true for us. You know, especially as good Reformed Presbyterians, do we find ourselves a little too consumed by the white-knuckled fight to preserve truth by, by closing off our churches, by closing off our families, our circles of friendship, to anyone that might stir things up, at the expense of welcoming our unbelieving neighbors to be captivated by the love that captivated us? Now, maybe we find our loving fellowship with our brothers and sisters from, from different corners of the church, different corners of our denomination, different corners of this very church, replaced by a a stiff-lipped and and steely-eyed suspicion because of who they vote for, because of what they think about masks or vaccines, because of where their kids go to school. Or maybe we've just endured suffering, loss, disappointment for so long that we've started to kind of just get functionally convinced that suffering, toil, and loss is all of God's plan for us, that God doesn't actually love me. See, toil, endurance, suffering for Christ's sake, these are all good, commendable things. Jesus says to the Ephesians, I know, I see it, I know. These are all things I've called you to, but... They are meaningless, Ephesians, if you've abandoned the love you have for me and if you've abandoned my love for you apart from all of that. You know, Paul makes it really clear in in 1 Corinthians 13 where he says, if I give away all I have and if I deliver, if I even deliver my body up to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So what hope is there? What hope is there when we find the love has, grown, has gone cold? When it feels like we might have abandoned the love we had at first? Well, the good news is that Jesus offers the Ephesians and us a path back towards love's return in verse 5. And what, what is that path? There's, there's three command verbs in verse 5. He says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, 
Repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, and do. He says, remember from what height you've fallen. Now, the form of that word is, it's, it's incomplete, it's, it's ongoing. Jesus is saying, Continue, keep on remembering Ephesians. Hold on to the memory of the first days. Ephesians, remember what it felt like to be captivated by my love for you and your love for me. Isn't that a wonderfully practical command? And I think it's one that we can easily understand. I mean, think of, think of a dear friendship or maybe your relationship with your spouse. You know, what it felt like the first time to be invited to, to grab coffee or a meal, to, to be invited out with a group of friends, to be texted unannounced. When, when the world had a, had a crispness to it, a newness to it. You know, one, one of the things I love about, about Facebook I don't know if you heard that. That was the sound of my middle and high school students tuning me out because I'm an old person because I still use Facebook. But one of the things I love about Facebook is the memories feature. You know, I'll open up my feed and and I'll see a picture of a concert I went to in college or or hanging out with friends uh, on the quad on campus or or hanging out on the beach with my family or or a date that I went on with Addie when we were dating. And, And it's as if I'm transported back to that moment. The feeling of just joy and excitement of screaming the lyrics at the top of my lungs with my best friends, the joy of of just basking in the sun on the beach with my family, the joy of sharing a conversation with my wife. And and it's not only a momentary band-aid. You know, memories have the ability to change our experience of the present. It's why when, when a couple is in crisis and they choose to go to couples counseling, One of the first questions they will likely be asked by a therapist is, I want you to think back to when you first met. What attracted you to your partner? Memory is powerful. It's a powerful thing. And Jesus calls the Ephesians and us when we're muddling through life in loveless zeal to remember what it felt like for him to first come and find us what it felt like when he first woke us up to the glory of his love for us, what it felt like when he first lit our hearts up to the the magnitude of his sacrifice for us and to the joy of the life that he offers. You know, those moments when you couldn't stop thinking about him, when you couldn't stop talking to him, when you couldn't stop talking about him. Jesus says, remember what that was like. Well, the second step on the path towards love return, Jesus says, is is to then repent. He tells the Ephesians, allow that memory to turn away, to to turn you away from, from loveless toil. Turn away from the loveless endurance. Make a full break of of the attitude towards towards God, towards yourselves, towards others that, that cause you to lose sight of the magnitude of my love for you. Turn away from the ways of coping, no matter how commendable they may be, that give empty promises of something better than the love you had in those first days. Allow that memory to to drive you to turn away, turn away from loveless zeal. You know, every once in a while when I I see a memory on Facebook, it's actually a picture of of a friend who I love, but who I haven't talked to in a while who have kind of let fall by the wayside. And, and there's sometimes, there sometimes is a pang of guilt. 
And that can turn very unhealthy very quickly. We're limited people. We only have so much capacity for, for deep friendship. But that feeling can also drive me towards wanting to be a better friend, towards turning away from forgetting those who I love. And the same is true of our first love, Jesus. Jesus says, continue to remember what it felt like to be captivated by my love. And then allow that remembering to drive you away from lovelessness. So remember, repent. And finally, Jesus says, do. Ephesians, do the things you did at first. Remember, Ephesians, what Paul wrote about you in Ephesians 1. Paul said, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Jesus says, choose to do again those works of love, Ephesians. Love the saints. Be filled with the hope of that to which I have called you, to love one another. And notice that Jesus does not say, wait until you feel it again. No, he says, do the works of love. Do them. You know, C.S. Lewis puts it, puts it this way in Mere Christianity when he's writing on, on Christian charity. You may have heard this quote. He says, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And when you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. See, as we do the works of love, as we do the actions of love, the Spirit stirs love in us. And so that was the call of Jesus to the Ephesians, to remember, repent, and do. And it's the call to us as well. So what, is it, what does it look like? What does it look like for us to, to do the works we did at first? You know, I think if, if it's our love for Jesus that, we, that is turned into a plodding duty, a toilful zeal, I think the call is to remember how deeply he loves us, how deeply he knows us and sees us right where we are, and then to choose to cling to him by faith, to pray to continue to show up and join God's people in worship. And then when prayer is too hard, when we can't find the words ourselves, we invite our brothers and sisters to pray with and for us, to allow God to minister his love to us through the work of the saints. You know, I think if, if it's our love for our brothers and sisters that's been replaced by skepticism and, and suspicion, I think the call is to remember what it first felt like to experience gospel-saturated relationship with God's people, to be welcomed into the family of God, no ifs, ands, or buts, and to do the action of love by moving towards those I'm skeptical of, towards those I'm suspicious of, developing and cultivating an, an, a, an innocent curiosity, a desire to understand, to know. And if it's our love for our unbelieving neighbor, replaced by, by fear of of influence, I think, I think it's the call to remember what it felt like to hear the story of a God who took on the weight of our sin so that we could be welcomed into his family. 
and then to turn and choose to offer that same welcome to others to come and just see and taste the goodness of Jesus. See, the the abandonment of love for the Ephesians and for us, it is not a terminal diagnosis. No, Jesus says there's a way towards love return. Remember, repent, and do. Why? Well, we see finally, and, and I promise a little bit more quickly, love's promise. Love's promise. The end of verse five, we, we, see, we see first a promise in the form of a warning, right? Jesus says to the Ephesians, Ephesians, if not, if you don't repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know, this image of the churches as lampstands, it is not accidental. It goes back to the Old Testament. In Zechariah 4, for example, Israel is called a lampstand. You know, what is the purpose of a lamp? It is to give light, it's to shed light to darkness. See, Jesus makes clear that that love, it's not an optional add-on to doctrinal zeal. It's not an optional add-on to endurance, to toil. It has to be the heartbeat of zeal, endurance, and toil. You know, in John, in John 13, Jesus is reclining at table with his disciples. Judas has just left to betray Jesus. And he's looking at the 11 remaining disciples, and he tells them, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, the warning of Jesus is that without love, we cease to be the church. If all we are is is loveless toil, loveless zeal, we cease to be light in darkness. And it might be tempting to read this warning as if Jesus is towering over the Ephesians, wagging his finger at them like a distant and cold teacher saying, "Mm mm-mm. But remember how Jesus introduced himself? the one who walks among the seven lampstands. See, this is not the voice of a distant teacher, but of a risen king and savior who actually stands with and in the midst of his church. Even in his church's abandonment of their first love, he comes to them. He writes a letter saying, repent, come back, come back. And he's doing the same for his church throughout all time. He commits himself to his church, calling us away from lovelessness because lovelessness is not what we were made for. And instead calling us back to live the love that we were made for, love for him, love for one another, and love for our neighbor. But it's not just a promise of warning. There's also a promise of hope. Verse seven, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He says here, we've already heard this before in Revelation. We're not just supposed to let this revelation wash over us and roll off of our back. We're supposed to internalize it, to hear it, and to respond in obedience, in love. And what happens when we do? When we do remember, repent, and do? Jesus says there is a love beyond toil a love beyond enduring. The promise of Jesus, once again, it calls us back to to the Garden of Eden, right? The tree of life, the same image as him walking among the lampstands. 
that, that there's, a, there's a time when, when Jesus is not just spiritually present with his church, but will be physically present, walking with his church in body. See, the promise of Jesus to those who conquer, those who endure, those who repent and cling once more, cling continually to Christ as their first love is the full experience of the love of Christ. A love beyond any love we could know in this life. A love beyond toil, beyond suffering, disappointment, and loss. So how? How do we gain this reward? Jesus says it's to the one who conquers. If you're like me, that that might catch you out a little bit. It's like, how can we talk about the danger of, of, of loveless toil and zeal? And then Jesus says, but you gotta conquer. Well, it's because of what comes in, in Revelation 5. See, in Revelation 5, Jesus is the one who is heralded as the one who conquers. John says he sees the Lamb of God standing as though slain. See, the one who conquers is not the one who who proves his love through toil and endurance, ultimately, who proves to God his love through bearing up. It is the one who clings to the love of the one who has already conquered. The one who has conquered death and sin and even my own lovelessness through his death for us and who invites us then into the benefit of that conquering act of love. Let me, let me close with, with this quote. You know, I was, I, was wrestling with this, I was wrestling through this text this week a lot. And I was on the phone. Uh, Pastor Fritz called me on Friday. And uh, I was sharing with him that, that it's, just, it's been a hard week. There's been some extra things on my plate uh, with trying to finish up ordination exams, uh, getting ready for youth group later today. Um, there uh, ongoing challenges that the Lord has placed before me and Addy in this season. I was behind on my sermon prep. I could feel the toil and the enduring setting in. And I told Fritz very honestly, I said, I, it just feels a little unfair to have to preach this passage because it's hard to rest in the love of God for me in the midst of this toil, in the midst of this enduring. And then after, shortly after we got off the phone, uh, Pastor Fritz sent me this quote. And it's from the new uh, devotional book, uh, Deeper by Dane Ortland, uh, who you might know, uh, for having written Gentle and Lowly. By the way, there are still copies of that book. If you've not read it, um, it's a wonderful place to rest in the love of Jesus for you. Um, there, and there's copies out, out, outside. But he, he sent me this quote where Ortland says this. The wraparound category of your life is not your performance, but God's love. The defining hallmark of your life is not in your cleanness, but his embrace. And the deepest destiny of your life is to descend deeper, even deeper, with quiet yet ever-increasing intensity into the endless love of God. See, brother and sister, if you are weary, if you are toiling away, if it feels like, like the love is not there, know that the call of Jesus does include toil. It does include endurance. It even includes suffering and loss. But that enduring, that toil, that suffering is not the end of the story. Because the call of Jesus looks beyond that. 
to the full experience of his love for us. It's, it's a call to sink deeper into, to cling to, to continually remember the endless love of God for you, his church. See, the call of Jesus to, to the Ephesians and to us is, is, is do not abandon the love you had at first. Why? It's, be, it's because the love you had at first, Jesus has, has not and will not abandon you. Let me pray for us. Father, oh God, we, we praise you and we thank you that you are a God who has committed yourself to your church. God, forgive us for the ways we turn away from your love, the ways we leave it behind in the name of toil and zeal and bearing up. God, we know these are not bad things, but God, we, we know that without love, they, they mean nothing. So Father, we ask that you, by your spirit, would continually call us back to the love we had at first. And it's in the name of that love, Jesus, that we pray all these things. Amen.